be advised, Blue Rose Task Force is filled with secrets and spoilers. Task Force Podcast, where we look deeply into Twin Peaks as a whole, one episode at a time, using the full scope of the show Twin Peaks and all its official media. We don't use the word canon, but we do consider all official releases important because Lynch and Frost have approved their presence. And we welcome all input into the collective consciousness that is the Twin Peaks community and wider universe. This podcast is a watch-along podcast for those who've seen all of Twin Peaks, including the third season, which we consider as we go along. Today, we're looking at the 19th overall episode of Twin Peaks, episode 18, often known, depending where you look, as season two, episode 11, episode 19, or what the German regionalization team named Masked Ball. I'm your host, John. In episode 18, James, a teenager, drives far from town and is ensnared by Evelyn, a woman who needs her car fixed quickly and at any cost. Betty Briggs says the Major has disappeared for his top-secret job before, and that it happening in the woods is significant. Cooper refuses to make a case for himself to Roger, despite knowing the moves he's supposed to make, because he's seeing beyond fear. Nadine is in high school and aims romantic sights on Mike Nelson, which gets her recruited by the wrestling coach. Dick brings little Nicky with him to show off to Lucy, but Andy's the one there instead, and they all go out for multids and physical comedy. Denise, not Dennis, Bryson, comes to town to investigate Cooper. Ernie gets told off by Norma. Hank informs Ben about the friendly takeover at One-Eyed Jacks. Lana and Dougie get married despite Dwayne's objections. Cooper gets a threatening tape from Wyndham Earl. And Josie reveals a lot of her situation to Harry, but makes a deal of protection instead with Catherine, which we learn is under false pretense because Andrew Packard is alive. Now we're going to look at this again as if this was a rewatch podcast where we've actually seen all of Twin Peaks. And I'm going to consider all these questions. And, um, you know, especially with the way, <laughs> you know, uh, the way part 17 went with um you know the shifting of realities and everything i'm gonna look at this tone shift um that happened under the reality of twin peaks uh rules so i'm gonna ask are we in a new timeline are we in a most wonderful dream or are we in a nightmare and then i'm gonna ask how do characters plans evolve in this uh supernaturally laced environment but before we can go into those kind of questions, of course, first, we're going to start looking at it by how it was um, how it was created in the first place. And we're going to look at some production history. Now, this is the first episode that Dwayne Dunham has directed in the season two. Um, and it's really the first one he's directed since episode one, which was the um, the initial follow up to, um, you know, to the pilot. 
So, you know, he was he was there instrumental in getting everybody um, back on like a Lynchian wavelength when it comes to this. But like, why was he missing since then? I'm not really too sure. I mean, obviously, season one, he was missing because he was editing Wild at Heart. But that movie debuted um, as um, as season one's airing was wrapping up and then uh, production didn't start up until, you know, June and July. Um, after that so i'm not really sure why uh dunham was missing in the first um in the first main story arc of season two but you know here he is now and um you know he does he does good solid camera camera work and everything and um you know it's it's kind of hard to it's kind of hard to see his stamp on this one um other than, you know, it definitely feels like a Twin Peaks episode, despite, you know, some of its plot lines. Um, and, you know, the same can be said for, uh, you know, uh, for Barry Pullman. Uh, you know, his contributions aren't really talked about anywhere that I could find. And, you know, I mean, he's a workman. You know, he does the solid craftsmanship. He uh, he takes care of characters and um, he's he's very dependable. So, you know, we've got a very dependable team on this episode. Though I suspect probably more so why their work isn't really um, overly noticed in this one is because um, we get, you know, we get the first details about the Black Lodge here. And, you know, of course, we get the first um, appearance of Denise. And those pretty much overshadow anything else that's happening in this episode. As far as the Black Lodge goes... Um, you know, per essential wrapped in plastic, we've got Frost, who um, he told The Independent in 1992 that Dion Fortune's psychic self-defense was exactly where I got the Black Lodge from. The whole mythological side of Twin Peaks was really down to me. And I've always known about the Theosophical Writers and the whole group around the Order of the Golden Dawn in the late 19th and early 20th century. William Butler Yeats, uh, Madame Blavatsky, and a woman called Alice Bailey. And, you know, the Golden Dawn, you know, that should ring any bells for secret history fans. But um, in reference specifically to Bailey and Fortune, uh, Frost told John Thorne that they influenced me as a young person. And it became the basis for my thinking about the duality of good and evil in the world. Is evil, in fact, made manifest anywhere in the world? You know, which is kind of where i see that he and lynch are lining up nicely you know for for what the foundation of twin peaks is because they both do focus on the duality it's just that you know frost is installing an actual mythology to kind of ground it frost continued and the black lodge was all about the idea that there was in fact a true manifestation of evil that needs to be actively and physically combated we never got a chance to tell all of it so, you know, I, I've heard that Lynch was uneasy about making the stuff uh, about, you know, like the lodge space, um, a physical state that you can, you know, bodily go to. Um, you know, I, I think he liked there being, um, you know, analogs to it. But and and by that, I mean, you know, like the waiter, um, you know, the giant, you know, that sort of thing, like can kind of poke into reality. But as far as crossing the threshold, I think that kind of is where we hear Lynch getting uneasy about it. But, you know, considering, considering all that, 
you know, here is where that very specific goal starts to, um, you know, become an endgame location. You know, Briggs went to the White Lodge in its introduction last episode at the very end. But, you know, now we hear, you know, it's like, you know, this is the Black Lodge. This is going to be the final battle site for this season. You know, we do have Denise coming up, but we also have the first appearance of Lana, Evelyn, and little Nikki here as well. And remember, I did say last episode that one of the mission statements was to, um, you know, to keep Twin Peaks exciting after the Laura Palmer mystery. Like, usually, like, you'd find a way to, like, maybe, you know, move out of town. But because it's this town, you need to move people in to keep it exciting, at least according to the way that um, the writers were thinking about it at the time. So, you know, yeah, we get... Uh, Robin Lively, you know, she says, um, you know, she looked at all the other ladies on on Twin Peaks already and said, you know, I can't compete with that, but I can still be creative with this. I've got to stand out. And she said that in reflections to Brad Dukes. And, um, you know, this is why she chose a Southern accent. Now, Annette McCarthy, she auditioned in front of Lynch. That's what she said in reflections there. So, you know, we get a sign that Lynch is officially signing off on the marsh plotline um you know i mean if he's if he's involved in the casting you know he he's approving this stuff and he's aware of it so you know even if he's kind of a wall otherwise we do see lynch here still participating as part of this uh you know production uh process you know annette mccarthy she said basically the only thing that she needed to do was be able to cry on cue you know cry on the spot and uh, she got the gig and uh, joshua harris who played little nicky he was 10 but you know he was a fan of the show you know he was <laughs> he was watching it like i was and he was like totally on board with the whole thing um so you know this is probably all of season one that he was completely focused on and then by the time he was recording this episode we uh got through those two episodes with like incredibly scary bob moments so i'd be curious how he felt about that but um yeah he was very excited to be there uh for his audition now as far as how denise um became part of the show you know it's like how did david Duchovny get involved well um you know, per reflections, Kimmy Robertson was talking about, you know, she, how she, um, she knew David Duchovny first and, um, you know, was even asked out on a date by him. And, um, you know, that's probably how, uh, Duchovny got, um, got, you know, put in front of Joanna Ray. Um, and, you know, maybe, maybe he was doing it just to get cast, but, you know, <laughs> uh, uh, Kimmy does have a good sense of humor about it. She's like, well, he never, never brought me on any of his shows you know but you know she was um she was sounding kind of you know like she she was um you know ha having a good humor about it at the time um but anyway yeah she did put him in front of joanna ray and um you know basically told her that you know he was very charming as far as how Duchovny heard about it um in twin peaks unwrapped he said that um he later learned that this was a character that Frost and James Spader came up with, but um, Spader got busy, I guess, on you know some kind of other project and couldn't do it. And then they opened it up to auditions. I don't know if that's true or not, but you know if Duchovny thinks it's true, it probably uh, came from something. As far as his actual audition, he didn't dress up for the part or anything. You know, the only thing he says he brought was a nail file, and um, 
he he that opened him up you know i guess it's kind of like how richard bamer worked great with a with the uh, prop of the cigar as far as uh, denise herself frost in reflections he said i wanted to introduce a character that had transgender issues i just thought it was an interesting subject that hadn't really been tackled much certainly not on network television I also thought it was interesting. It was an interesting dilemma for Cooper to have a relationship with a guy he had known as a guy, but now preferred to be a girl. So as far as the use of the word dilemma, you know, it's like, let, let's look. Um, okay, this was 1990. And it, sometime, you know, like within the next five to 10 years, we've got, you know, um, any kind of expressions of non-toxic ma masculinity um, usually needed to be followed with something like, you know, not that there's anything wrong with that. You know, their gay panic ran rampant, especially in stuff like sitcoms. So, you know, it's like the, the use of the word dilemma is kind of fighting against stuff like that. And, um, you know, then we have, um, you know, shows like in, in 2000, um, Ellen McBeal season four, while Robert Downey Jr. is there. We've also got Cindy McAuliffe, played by Lisa Edelstein, who is a romantic interest for uh, James LaGrosse's Mark Albert. Um, and, you know, everybody knew that Richard Fish was going to have a problem with that and play it for laughs because, you know, he's basically the um, the Archie Bunker of the piece, except he's played as, you know, like the... Uh, you know, oh my God, I can't believe he just said something so wrong. You know, that that was just the comedy of the day. He was the comedy mule. Um, but, you know, even characters like um, the the more straight-laced John Cage, you know, he had to say, you know, she had a penis and make a big, huge deal out of it. So, like, you know, th this doesn't get portrayed very often on television. And, you know, this is how it got portrayed in 10 years. It was the struggle of um, of Cindy to fully um be accepted and recognized as competent so um you know that being in the year 2000 and then we're back here in 1990 i would say that um you know denise was portrayed well you know considering you know cindy in in ellie mcbeal was very competent and um it turned out in this show though that you know it's not about seeing the struggle of a transgendered person, you know, we just get, um, you know, we just get Denise already seen and respected. Christopher Lieberman in, um, a, a over a 25 YL wrote, wrote a, wrote a piece called what it means for, for Denise Bryson to be who she is. And basically says that Denise has a high status, both dramatically and professionally and never relinquishes that status to anyone only remaining amused and aloof in the face of others' resistance. So, yeah, it's not really about the resistance to Denise. I mean, honestly, there's only two moments of standoffishness in this whole thing. You know, we've got Hawk crossing his arms and not really saying anything right away. And, um, you know, Harry was saying something like, you know, it's like, oh, yeah, they'll get a surprise too. You know, and, you know, I, I'd wager that um, that, awkward reaction in the introduction was included because based on 1990 you know con considering how it was still being portrayed in the year 2000 um i think you know culturally it would be weirder for denise not to be reacted to at all like that so um 
you know, at the time, that would have completely broken the uh, the suspension of disbelief for viewers who really aren't used to seeing anything remotely related to transgender. You know, sure, Hawk and Harry don't age well, but, you know, at least, you know, it's like we're going to say, like, okay, this isn't something that happens every day. But then Twin Peaks goes right on past and says, you know what, okay, it's not every day, but okay. And um, Kyle MacLachlan in Reflections basically puts it the best way that, you know, um, you know, speaking about, um, you know, David Duchovny was a good sport about it. And it was a chance for Cooper to reveal his acceptance of people, which, you know, absolutely comes out in this episode. And I think right after Cooper accepts Denise, uh, you know, unquestionably, then accuse all of us and accuse Hawk and Harry and everybody else in the department to accept um you know denise um unconditionally as well and you know from that point forward nobody really um gives much uh gives much credence to the fact that you know she's not just uh, a really good uh agent doing her job well so yeah good on you twin peaks now as far as how the show was accepted in the ratings um, it aired on Saturday, December 15th, 1990, and it actually went up a million viewers, you know, from 12.1 million or it was it was at 12.1 million viewers from last week's 11.1 million. So it actually gained a million viewers for a change, which, you know, it, it's like the exact inverse to Twin Peaks's typical problem. So, you know, I mean, it probably got a bump because it was the last episode before winter break. And, you know, folks wanted to see where the show might end and, you know, what kind of cliffhanger we might get, you know, anything like that. Because, um, you know, the next time we're supposed to see our shows that, um, you know, end in the middle of December is probably, you know, at least the second week of January. Now, as far as personally, I really don't remember much about this episode at all. I don't I don't really remember Denise. I vaguely remembered the talk about the major at the beginning. But, you know, most of this episode was, like didn't even attach to my brain at that point. Um, and, you know, honestly, I wonder if I'd already started to drift out of the room, um, you know, during the episode or if I was just like doing my own thing and just not paying attention. Um <clears throat> but you know i was 12 i couldn't <laughs> it's it's tough to remember everything specifically now as far as what happened after this aired after fire walk with me was uh you know released and everything you know how did david lynch feel about this um after after he came back to it for the log lady intros well um the log lady intro goes like this is life like a game of chess are our present moves important for future success? I think so. We paint our future with every present brushstroke. Painting, colors, shapes, textures, composition, repetition of shapes, contrast. Let nature guide us. Nature is the great teacher. Who is the principal? Sometimes jokes are welcome. Like the one about the kid who said, I enjoyed school. It was just the principle of the thing. So we've got, you know, a nod to chess, even though Frost is the chess guy. Um, you know, so he's connecting thematically to what chess represents in the show. You know, the, the present dictates the future, essentially, is what I get out of what he's saying here. Um, you know, and then he switches the metaphor to painting. So, um, you know, that's what Lynch would get out of that. So, you know, we, we kind of get like, 
in a in a quick couple of words here, we kind of get how um, Lynch and Frost kind of meet on the middle for at least this kind of foundational thing with Twin Peaks. Um, and, you know, I'm noticing things like, you know, repetitions of shapes. And, you know, that's like how things are fractal in this in this whole show. You know, like, um, you know, every everything from, um, you know, the the way the grand mythology works to how one individual character is reacting to it. You know, it's like it all kind of works in the same kind of fractal way. And, um, you know, Lynch's advice to let nature guide us, uh, you know, what is in our hearts will fix us if we follow it. Um, you know, Denise showing up in that scene with Gordon later on um, with, you know, fix your hearts or die. Um, I kind of feel like Lynch was already sort of feeling that connection where, you know, it's like be your authentic self and you will be you will be your strongest self. Um, so, yeah, I think I think it kind of hit a nerve. You know, as as far as nature being the great teacher and the principal is the dad joke, um, you know, it's it's very Lynch. Um, how he always he always seems to cloak his main thematic beliefs into something that makes him smile. You know, is he hiding it behind comedy? I I I mean, yeah, but you know, is he making you not think about it too hard? You're just kind of absorbing it. Um, I kind of feel like, you know, the smile is there when he talks about stuff like this. So you can feel a positive thing toward the concept that he's trying to give us. All right. So before we dig into the episode uh, properly, um, we are going to get some words from our fellow podcasters at Ruminations Radio Network. You've been listening to another fine, fine podcast on the Rumination Radio Network. This is Game Agent E.T. from Oh God, It Hurts! And we hope you keep on listening to our fine, fine podcasts here on RuminationsRadioNetwork.com. All right, we're back. And um, we're going to start out by looking at, um, you know, something that I probably should have started looking at last episode. Um, you know, with the tone change, like I, I looked at it more from a production history standpoint last time. But I mean based on how things change in the future and like how, you know, Cooper can, you know, quote unquote, travel back in time and uh, change everything. Um, it's, it's actually worth uh, fielding the question. Are we now in a new timeline uh, since the uh, Laura Palmer murder has been solved? And, you know, my knee jerk reaction is to say that, you know, no, there are too many connections of the old continuity to be straightforwardly a new timeline. But, um, you know, we, we get these three missing days where things could have retuned a little bit. And, um, you know, do we enter it after Cooper talks to Sarah about Leland, where that really is connected to previous um, episodes? But, you know, I mean, it does shift immediately to comedy over at the repost at the Hayward house. You know, was there was there a timeline shift um, during the credits this time? And, you know, I'd still say no, based on the fact that Cooper has become, you know, taken over by the darkness later on that, you know, he says, you know, is gone forever. So, you know, I, I think it's I think it's more about being stuck behind wishful thinking rather than, you know, a, a, a completely new timeline. But, you know, like in, in season three. We do see that, you know, we're kind of aligned with the season two story elements. You know, it's like we do see Hawk seeing the curtains and then you know, he never talks about it again. And Annie appears in Laura's diary 
um, you know, when when they're still talking that, you know, Laura was a girl who died once. But then, you know, once part eight enters the picture, things do start to begin to change slightly, you know, even if it's just turkey jerky. And, you know, this this new timeline that Cooper begins in part 17 by you know taking Laura before she dies in the fire walk with me death scene, um, you know, that all seems to kind of assert itself right around then. So, you know, with the three missing days, are we in a world that... Um, you know, has all these new elements over the top of itself, uh, changing, you know, how even the characters see things. I mean, it's possible, but, you know, I think it's more to do with, you know, we're now in a world that doesn't necessarily want to believe what happened had happened. Or, you know, we're in a world that's looking away from what happened and, um, you know, the white of the eyes and, you know, it doesn't want to be affected by what happened. So, we just see a lot of things not being affected by what had happened in previous um, in previous episodes. But, you know, I, I don't think it's a timeline issue. I think these soft reboots of characters that we're getting from the production side leave room for new perceptions. And, um, you know, it's like there's these new frequencies that characters are kind of existing within that we get glimpses of um, in every Twin Peaks episode. You know, it's like there's this... Um, there's this new approach to how characters perceive their reality. And essentially, I think, you know, when you're looking away from the complicated and the difficult things, it's easy to be taken over by the effects of the woods when you live by Twin Peaks. And, you know, this is how I see season three as well, by the way. But, you know, the main push of these perceived effects in the woods there are likely in, you know, season three being steered by Cooper's dark side, you know. So it all feels kind of like it's of the same it's of the same pressure. Whereas, you know, right here in these episodes, um, the tone shift changes all the time. You know, it seems to be kind of um, being steered by each individual who we're looking at. You know, it's like everybody is being influenced by the woods and being influenced by this dreamy state. But, you know, it's it's just a matter of whether, you know, we get people, you know, clearly in the realm of comedic farce um, that are kind of seeing it in like this, um, you know, a most wonderful kind of dream or, you know, um, you know, then, you know, we'll, we'll get more and more people, uh, kind of seeing this place as a nightmare. And, um, you know, it's like none of these takes are actually realistic based on how we saw Twin Peaks up to now, but, you know, it just depends if you're seeing the world with love or if you're allowing your fears to drive your vehicle. And um, that's kind of what I'm going to do here is I'm going to break this down into the people who kind of exist in a positive frequency and see Twin Peaks that way. And then people who exist in a negative frequency and see Twin Peaks that way. Okay, so now I'm going to ask you, are we in a most wonderful dream? And this is basically how I'm going to group the um, the more positive leaning things or you know the the comedic farcical kind of elements and um first thing we have is we have a we have a storyline that kind of embodies the old great northern convention convention whereas you know something's always happening in the middle of the great northern um throughout the whole episode well this time it's the wedding of uh of dougie and lana and it kind of you know the the 
the convention of having something happening in the Great Northern has now become a plot. So it's kind of like, um, what do you call it? Embodying a uh, a more fun part of the show. Like they're they're growing that into something that um, you know can make you smile. And they even use it to explain Lucy's absence. Now, Andy and Hawk, um, they enter in the middle of a conversation with um, with Harry and Cooper. And, um, you know, they, they bring in the uh, the Milford wedding present, which is a matching scarf and ascot set. Um, and, you know, Hawk, Hawk mentions, you know, Dougie weddings are a seasonal thing, like the return of the salmon. And, uh, you know, Cooper, <laughs> Cooper Cheekley responds, marry in haste, repent in leisure. One of the funnier things I find about this, though, is we actually get the marriage and the reception afterward, which is more than we can say about Laura's funeral without a repast and then Leland's repast without a funeral. You know, there we we got either the before or the after. Here we get, you know, incidentally, the whole thing. And, you know, we see the accordion player, you know, Cooper arrives in a jacket with no tie. Um, you know, the log lady's there, you know, saying... As she sits down with Pete and the mayor, I just love Milford Weddings. And, you know, how'd she get the invite in the first place if they can't find her house? Uh, yeah, so anyway, continuity, continuity fun. Yeah, we get Harry congratulating the couple as they cut the cake. Um, you know, he's happily buzzed later, soaking up uh, Cooper's happiness as he dance with, dances with Audrey and watching the comedy from uh, from Denise and Andy sharing a dance even though probably Lucy's supposed to be there, but you know, whatever we, we look away from a lot of, uh, a lot of things, including continuity issues, you know, it's all positive. It's all happy energy overall. And, you know, not even, not even Lana can ruin the, uh, the happy vibe by mentioning to Cooper, you solved that Laura Palmer case, didn't you? And then they just dance away. You know, it's like, they'll mention the past, but that's as close as you're going to get to it here. And honestly, not even Dwayne the mayor's, uh, you know, misgivings can can mess with the vibe. You know, he's all, he's basically the antagonist, but he's used for comedy due to you know everyone else's reaction to him. You know, like like his like his worries don't actually matter. Um, you know, because I guess you know, like like um, like Lynch has been known to say, you know, it's like. Uh, the truth can be funny when you don't understand it, you know, like that. It, it just kind of fits in with that. And, you know, we, we've got Dwayne calling out Lana as a gold digger and, you know, be, you know, uh, she'll be the, she'll be the death of him and you know, all that kind of stuff. And, um, you know, of course, you know, the Reverend cues him up the same Reverend from the funeral scene, by the way. Um, he, um, he cues up, uh, Dwayne by like, you know, like, uh, if, if anybody has objections now or forever, hold your peace. And, uh, you know, then Dwayne, um, does say it, uh, has to get walked out by Harry because, you know, they don't, uh, give any credence to it. And then, you know, it, it's turned into a joke when the Reverend says, so if there be no further objections and then, you know, the scene cuts. So we have everybody being in this happy little dream where, you know, it's like, oh, a wedding. Everything's great. Everything's fun. Except Dwayne, he's kind of stuck in a nightmare. So, you know, the, the frequency of, you know, that you're in isn't necessarily the same frequency as everybody around you. You know, it's like it's it's um, 
the 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 point of view is from the physical world but you know the tone that we get as viewers is kind of the majority opinion you know the, the negative and the positive look the same on the film you know even though they feel more like you know the majority opinion at the time but the dark you know the the negative frequency you're still living in it even if um you're in a different scene so you know like the the way i see the um the frequencies kind of interacting that's that's a good basic way to put it who's kind of steering this um this positive dreamy frequency here though it's uh it's dougie milford you know sure he's the focus character from secret history of twin peaks uh where he's you know like basically a man in black you know investigating alien abductions and whatever other kind of strangeness but you know he's he's getting involved with lana here he's uh he's following his appetite you know like the the weddings they come in as he as he sees these women and gets intoxicated by them and you know he um his appetite is sated with a wedding and then you know obviously the cycle starts over again um so you know it's like if he wants it and he's happy okay everybody is happy for him you know they're they're um they're they're happy to have another wedding and the dougie's happy even though you know maybe he's uh he's completely unprotected from whatever Lana is bringing into his life. Now, less associated with the, um, with the positive dream frequency, but is a genuine positive situation in the first place is, um, you know, the, the most authentic character we have in this show uh, up to this point, Denise Bryson. So Gordon Cole introduces Denise uh, with this odd, but funny misunderstanding laced, you know, uh, comedic, it, it you know the 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 he can't hear right kind of comedy uh over a phone call from Bend, Oregon, which is the same space that he was leaving to at the beginning of episode fourteen. So um, you know, this is Lynch um proving that he's aware of the storyline of Denise. Um and you know, he's basically co-signing its inclusion. Um, you know, rather than shooting it down, he's gonna be a voice as part of it. You know, Lynch checks on this, you know, let a smile be your umbrella advice at the very end, you know, basically lead with love, not with fear, um, you know, and, and it ends up being a good bookend with fix your heart or die later. Um, so um, in this phone call, Gordon's offering Cooper support during his investigation. Uh, Cooper says, you know, who are they sending? And we get the long silence and, you know, it's Gordon, Gordon Cole, <laughs> which is awesome. That That always makes me laugh. Um, you know, then, then Gordon understands and says, oh, Dennis Bryson and Cooper says a good man, Harry, no nonsense, which, you know, of course is supposed to, um, you know, lead to a funny laugh for the viewers because, you know, it sure looks like there's a lot of nonsense, but the way they handle the nonsense is absolutely wonderful. Um, you know, Denise walks in and, you know, Cooper reacts and you're like, oh, and, uh, then, you know. Denise basically says, it's a long story, but I prefer Denise if you don't mind. So, you know, establishing terms and, you know, um, you know, later on, um, you know, Cooper actually calls her Dennis and, uh, you know, she just corrects her. I mean, she corrects Cooper and he says, I'm sorry. And then they just move on. It's, um, you know, it's, it's like with the whole pronoun thing that has come up, um, in, in popular culture to the point where, you know, even I've heard about it. Um, 
you know, that's only been in the last like what five years in in like normal culture. So like this was um this was pretty nice to see back then. So anyway, we see Denise, you know, talking about catching the bouquet. Um, you know, no, none of the other ladies were ever a wide receiver. Um, you know, it's 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 fun, but it's just um it it's not at Denise's expense. Um, you know, she tells her story, you know, the, it was last year she was working on suburban surveillance. Uh, you know, the, the target seemed to only sell to transvestites. Um, and then, uh, Denise found that wearing women's clothes relaxed me, as she says. Um, and then, you know, we get, you know, it was, was a very confusing two weeks. And then, um, you know, other comments, she says, you know, imagine how surprised I was. It's not exactly something you plan on. You know, it's just like respecting it for, you know, it's like, sure. I mean, this isn't exactly normal according to popular culture, but, you know, it's a thing that's happening. And then, you know, Denise rolls with it. And then, you know, in response, so does Cooper. Um, uh, David Duchovny in uh, Twin Peaks Unwrapped, he said on portraying the character, he didn't go for camp, etc. not even comedy. He chose to portray the person as having found their true face in a way. I just remember approaching it as, okay, if you're a person and you find your true face or the mask that fits, how open would that make you? And then I just went into every scene trying to feel joyful and open, finally comfortable, comfortable in my skin and my clothes. So, you know, that's... That's really in line with um, uh, Christopher Lieberman's article. Uh, and, and Christopher is a, a trans author, by the way, um, you know, writing what it means for Denise Bryson to be who she is. And, you know, um, uh, Lieberman doesn't doesn't really give a final answer on, you know, whether it's good representation or not. I mean, I, I think, uh, you know, Christopher's not too much, um, you know, it's it, like Christopher wasn't alive in 91 <laughs> in the first place. So like, you know, like just, just like the, the cultural frame of reference, it's hard to tell um, officially if you can call it good representation or not, but I think it was trying and that's good. And I, I believe that's where, uh, where Lieberman comes down to. But anyway, um, Christopher says, Denise, uh, Denise saying that my recent experience has taught me never to judge too quickly illustrates how Denise's transition has granted her wisdom as well as joy. She is excited to tell Cooper all about her new life, which is so pleasing to hear in immediate contrast to Hawk and Truman's judgmental stares. I can only speak for myself, of course, but I have found that an upside to my transition has been getting to know myself without the nonsense impositions of cisgender society. Denise's comment about getting more in touch with her feelings uh, clearly defies the expectations that would have been forced on her when she identified as a man. There's no getting around the fact that life for a transgender person is full of hardship and pain, but when I watch TV for enjoyment, I don't always want to be reminded of those things. Perhaps it was a result of the general ignorance of the time. But nonetheless, I am glad I am glad of a trans character whose story is not all about how hard it is to be trans. So I do I do appreciate as you know, as John, your host, um, that, you know, it does 
reflect well on the experience of actually um realizing one is one is trans but it um happenstantially also works out really nicely for twin peaks because it really is consistent with the main themes of twin peaks um you know finding your true face um wearing masks you know um the the residents of twin peaks have hidden identities hidden by choice or by circumstance and you know that's that's where their pain tends to come from and um you know the the guilt of not doing things but as um as uh robert engels mentioned um that and i included that last episode about like how guilt wasn't a uh, weapon that they could use anymore while writing um you know you kind of have to look away from that kind of stuff but you know coming from the fbi denise identifies and you know like i mean uh Denise is coming from the FBI where identities and personal truth are up front and on display. You know, we got Cooper following his intuition, um, you know, explicitly like, like, you know, he, he's not scared of, you know, who he tells his processes to, um, Albert follows his facts, um, you know, like to the, to the end of his abilities, you know? Um, and then, you know, Denise is following her most authentic self, and, you know, rises all the way to the top of the FBI in part four of season three. And, you know, the whole time remains so joyful about being herself that she still finds the word Federal Bureau of Investigation to be some of the um, the, the, the happiest words in her life, you know. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's like the understanding of self and purpose, you know, the, the following your personal path and your own quest for your own truth. Um, it seems to be a trait in the FBI. Yeah, you know, in the in the same way that Denise is also consistent with the show up until now, and um, stays consistent with the FBI. Um, you know, be, being authentic to yourself on the outside as you are on the inside is also um, a good uh, portrayal of uh, Jungian integration. And um, you know, it's it's um, it's a way in you know Theosophy and all that. Like um, all of that matches up. Where like if you're if you're um, living your truth, um, you're basically rising up into higher frequencies. And, you know, that would help Denise align with the uh, the positive frequencies of reality perception that all the uh, the farcical comedy tends to to lean into, though, you know, for different reasons. It's not um, it's not that Denise is caught up with the delusions. It's just, you know, that she kind of operates on the same level as all that. And then we're getting. Um, I mean, it's it's a less of a physical transformation in um, in a person's present, but we do have Nadine Hurley, you know, protecting herself within this um, massive delusion. You know, Nadine comes from it from um, you know fear of the world in a lot of ways, and like you know, she's she's um, she has to be sort of dreaming in order to be this kind of brave. But we see. Nadine kind of transforming into the Nadine that she always wanted to be. You know, she starts out in this episode between classes. Um, you know, she um she seeks out Donna and you know Donna asks if she'd heard anything about James and you know the the only the, the closest she gets to reality is knowing, you know, it's like, "Oh, Eddie's friend with the motorcycle hasn't been around for a couple of days." So she's kind of aware of James but not, you know, in any sort of like familial way like she should. You know, what she's focused on 
is asking if, you know, Donna's still going with Mike, you know, and then she says, don't say anything, but there might be some major chemistry developing. And, um, you know, Mike passes by, says hi to Donna and completely ignores Nadine. So, you know, it's like that what what she's talking about is obviously a delusion at this point. And, um, you know, Donna, Donna's kind of amused by this whole thing, but also kind of horrified. You know, she's like, what about Ed? And there's this cute dialogue with Nadine, you know, talking about, you know, it's like, well, Ed stays in and Mike goes out and, uh, da, da, and, da, da, da. and <laughs> it's just like, you know, the, the, this pro and con between, you know, it's like Mike is doing everything Nadine wants. Ed is doing everything that, you know, makes her make, it, you know, he, he acts like he's old enough to be my father. <laughs> yeah. So like, uh, she's noticing that Ed is a grown up without, you know, being able to completely, um, understand that he is a grown-up um but you know it's like we see we see nadine blooming all the same and you know she's living out the high school experience that she always wanted but was afraid to get you know this isn't a cycle repeating like a lot of the trauma in this you know this is actually nadine going through a healing process and grabbing hold of a life that she always wanted to have and couldn't have so like she's kind of going back like ben horn like back to the beginning and then trying again and you know the first thing she's doing when she's trying again is understanding that ed is not her ending destination you know um because um you know because we get the intention behind her fire being very strong she gets closer to mike than ever just by being herself you know it's like she sits down in the weight room next to him and you know she's doing the leg press at 600 pounds to impress him and um you know like we um we get mike you know just uh, like you know she's staring at mike completely and all he says is look is there something you want and you know she sees that as him being forward you know it's like same way she can't recognize ed for what he is uh she can't recognize mike for where he's at either um and you know she just says why mike aren't we being a little forward and you know in comes the coach and you know he sees nadine doing her thing and she said you know he, he tells her what's your name little lady have you ever thought about going out for the wrestling team so um you know she's looking at mike like yes like everything she's doing is manifesting into more of what she wants and you know then we've got mike looking like he's in the middle of a nightmare so he and he and Dwayne milford are sort of in the same sort of situation where like you know they're they're not in the uh majority opinion but they still exist <laughs> and uh yeah he's uh he's got some fear on his side and she's got nothing but confidence now i brought up ben horn as like kind of starting over from the beginning and that really does kind of start here in a way i mean obviously i know that he changes directions uh fairly soon <laughs> in like completely unexpected ways from the script but you know um Bamer didn't know where it was going and i don't know if the writers knew where it was going exactly either so um yeah i'm i'm gonna kind of ignore where he actually ends up going because we could talk about that shift in his brain later. You know, we, we have been kind of going positive and negative at this point, almost like he doesn't know which way to go. Um, but you know what, where he does know that he wants to go is he wants to kind of start at the beginning. He, um, he's watching the old movies of his family and his younger self, you know, reconnecting with memory 
and reconnecting with his family too which isn't really there anymore you know it's like we, we've got the film projector pumping white light through the top of the frame we don't see what it is first and then we hear the harp version of the twin peaks theme which is so classy um and you know then there's this um this illustration of a family with um with the with the with the um with the font of you know great northern hotel written above them um you know the horn men and a shovel at a groundbreaking ceremony um young ben and jerry are invited to the stage you know they act like goofballs and then we get a look at our ben you know the the current day ben in a robe and pajamas you know he's smiling um you know he he's appearing bittersweet and you know he's intentionally looking backwards with a cigar and everything and like he's kind of disheveled and um you know he he laughs at uh when when ben and jerry like stick their tongues out and like put their fingers in their ears and do that the the, the funny faces you know then then we see young ben getting a shovel full of dirt and our ben gets up happy and proud to watch his younger self doing this and um you know, then he says, now is the winter of our discontent. And, you know, he continues on the quotes um, and he stands next to the screen with his shadow covering some of the image. And he touches his mother and kisses her cheek, you know, taps on his younger self and smiles like, yeah, that guy. And, you know, then the film runs out and the screen is just white and Ben's still smiling. But you can kind of tell that he's sad that the film is done, too. And then he says, you know, now are the brows proud bowed with victorious wreaths and sounds like he's quoting richard the third here um you know the the shakespeare play who was a monster in that so you know we've got ben identifying with the monstrous bad guy you know the the main character but also a bad guy um of all of this you know even even before hank shows up he's identifying with this kind of role you know, kind of like, where have I become, you know, like, what have I become? That kind of brain pattern seems to be happening here. You know, this is when Hank interrupts and, um, you know, now Ben snaps back into like one of the only things he has left. And he's like, where the hell have you been? And then, um, you know, Hank says, I've had an absolutely killer schedule. And, you know, Ben turns off the projector, walks over to where smug Hank is. And, um, you know, goes through the whole litany of everything. And it's like, do you know what kind of hell I've been through the past few days? Uh, you said you took care of Catherine in the mill fire. She is alive. As you can imagine, not a happy camper. Through trickery, extortion, she has managed to cheat me out of both. Both Ghostwood and the mill. So there we go. He is acknowledging what had happened there. Um, you know, then he talks about being arrested for the murder of Laura Palmer, which is a real business enhancer, and um, that Leland turned out to be a homicidal lunatic. So he's catching up. He actually is looking at his situation in the face for, you know, a moment. <laughs> and, um, you know, then, then he shifts back to the present where he tries to focus on improving himself. You know, this is where he decides to go after... Um, after he lo loses everything you know he's basically talking about feng shui before it was a thing in popular culture uh i mean it was right before it became a thing in popular culture but at the time you know it's like you know he couldn't even call it feng shui you know he talks about the arrangement of furniture and that if one can find the perfect arrangement of all objects in any particular space it could create a resonance and you know again we have a frequency um term right here a resonance the benefits from which to the individual dwelling in that space could be um, extensive. It could be far reaching. 
So, you know, we have another thought about frequency um, being able to put you in a good place. And, you know, that's thematically close to, oh, I don't know, golden shovels, which was actually in the beginning of this scene. You know, it's not um, it's not explicitly tied at this point, obviously. But, you know, it's like, you know, he, he's he, in a way, Ben Horn is beginning a process of, you know, trying to shovel himself out of the shit. And also, it was from a point where you know the origin of the space he's currently living in was on that was on that film, and then he's talking about arranging all the things within it so that it occupies that space properly. You know, obviously, he's going to have a delusion in that space where he breaks through, um, you know, being a bad guy in the Civil War, and then uh, ends up winning his way through it you know it's like even a bad guy can become victorious and then from that point he wakes up to himself in a uh in a blatant way and um tries to be good so you know you know from that point forward he can also hear the resonance of a frequency that is probably josie at the end of this season and then he hears that hum again with beverly um where he eventually is told that he is a good man so, you know, the the redemption arc of Ben Horn is officially already started, even though he's still not completely at rock bottom until the end of this scene, when, um, you know, his extensive and far-reaching changes are far to come. But, you know, that that's probably mostly to do with the fact that Hank, um, you know, finally reveals his hand of card. And, you know, he's like, you know, that's fascinating, Ben, really. Listen, though, what I, what we have to talk about now is one-eyed jacks. And, you know, then he goes in, you know, here's how it is. And, like, Ben, you know, he even shouts Ben twice. You know, like, he shouts Ben uh, after he says it once just to catch Ben's attention from this, you know, could you help me move this desk thing? You know, like, um, Ben's fix himself project has to take a seat because um you know he owns one eye jacks and you know hank says no there's been a friendly takeover and um you know then he admits that um you know he doesn't work for ben anymore and then ben gets really really happy with himself because he figures it out you know he's angry but he's proud that he pieced together what happened and you know tells hank that jean renault is the one who's um who's in charge now, quote unquote, and then says he's a psychopath. You are dancing with the devil. And then, um, you know, like you, you think I'm just going to sit here and let you take all this. And, um, you know, then we've got Hank like grabbing him by the scruff of his clothes and, you know, saying, uh, Ben life is change. You know, and that, that's an interesting place to put this opposing thought process, you know, like having Hank say the life is change. And, um, you know, we've, we've actually got, um, Ben trying to make changes on the interior, whereas Hank is talking about the change of the exterior and, um, and we've got Hank being great here. I mean, Chris Mulkey and, um, and, uh, Richard Bamer together in this scene, it's really solid acting on both parts. Um, and you know, this is honestly probably the last time we seem that we see Hank remotely threatening, um, cause you know, I mean, we've already seen his peg get, um, kicked down a little bit, um, you know, by getting beat up by Jonathan, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but you know, here he's kicking Ben when he's down and, um, 
you know, that, that, um, you know, it doesn't elevate Hank's level of villainy, but it does put him back to, you know, like, okay, this is where he's threatening. This is, he thought in, um, in season one that everybody was kind of under his level. And, um, that's when he can be threatening is when he's that kind of a bully basic. And we've got, you know, Ben calling him out, you know, don't patronize me, you goon. And, um, you know, this is where, um, this is where Hank actually grabs uh, Ben and says, you're a mess, Ben. Look at you. You screwed up, boss man. You're out, Ben. And, um, you know, the second time saying it that he's out, it's more understood because Hank just gave all the context and Ben kind of figured out some of it, too. You know, the second time you say something, it's more understood. You know, the first time you're reacting to it, the second time you can you have a chance of understanding it. Two coats. But yeah, anyway, Hank lets Ben go, walks away. Uh, ben doesn't move right away uh, until after the door closes and the room is darker. And this is when he shakes himself off and says, you're out, Ben, uh, condescending and quiet. And then he laughs and says, you're out, Ben, is uh, like in a Hank impression kind of way. And more laughing. And, you know, he hits things off his desk. You know, you're out, Ben, laughing. Uh, then he turns on the projector and he sits cross-legged on that newly cleared spot and he makes deer shadow puppets coming in from the right. And, um, Bamer in Essential Wrapped in Plastic, he said, no one had said cut yet, so I kept going. There was just something about that scene where I felt totally comfortable as an actor. And in my own mind, I didn't have any anticipation about what was going to happen the next second. Usually in the back of my head, there's a little voice that is the actor looking at the next mark where I'm supposed to go to. All of that stuff, which usually gets in the way of spontaneity, I just found myself taking time and letting it go. For me, that was the high point of the shooting. So, so Bamer felt free enough in the scene to ad-lib like that, and Ben was in a similar point of freedom. Um, you know, but, but like Bamer, Ben didn't know where things were heading, and he saw an opportunity to go back to starting positions, you know, um, because Ben had just lost everything. He lost even one more thing, you know, the thing that made him, you know, bad guy, you know, head bad guy over at, uh, one eye Jacks. Um, you know, even that's gone now. Um, so he really is back completely to starting positions and, you know, it, it's more comfortable there. Uh, <laughs> but also in a way like, um, you know, Cooper Dougie beginning part three, you know, he, he, um, he looks at his child self again. You know, he doesn't become a child quite like Dougie does, uh, like Cooper does as Dougie. But, um, you know, it's, it's interesting, you know, it's just like Nadine, you know, it's like you start, you, you don't have what your life had been, um, since, you know, a certain point of your childhood, you know, it's like what's left. Um, you get to kind of start over and do it over the way that you always wanted to. And, you know, what's left, we've got, you know, a deer like shadow puppet, uh, reaching in like a hand in a sketch towards some other kind of deer creature that we see in uh, that, uh, that Gordon Cole had free drawn, you know, it's like, we see Ben Horn's point of view transforming. Um, yeah, I mean, it's not exactly like, uh, Dennis into Denise or anything, but you know, it's like, we're, we're seeing a lot of transformation happening here in, in the episode thematically. And, you know, it's like, we have the bad guy identity, um, suffering a defeat 
um, while he's at the point of looking back at his childhood. So, you know, yeah, I mean, like the, the, the only other time we see him in this episode is, um, in the end credits where we see more of that horns footage, uh, with the family standing together. And then there's no shenanigans there at the time. You know, it's not for fun. It's just, you know, it's like, okay, you know, the, it's, it's, it's interesting to look back. We also in this episode have another bit of farce going on with Andy, Dick, and little Nikki. Um, that whole trio begins here. Um, you know, like we, we've got, um, <clears throat> you know, we, we've got little Nikki here. You know, it's like we'll hear about a tragic backstory in the future. You know, it's like, how is this kid an orphan? It's like, I don't know. We're going to, we're, we're just going to look at it like it's 50s shenanigans. Kind of like how little Ben and Jerry do the tongue out fingers in the ears thing on camera. And it's super cute. Um, you know, we've got little Nicky uh, supposing to be cute uh, or supposed to be cute. And, you know, he's doing things like blowing whipped cream in Dick's face and uh, spinning, spinning um, Deputy Andy's diner chair. So, like, you know where um, Ben and Jerry uh, grow into. So, like, little Nikki could be that devil character that you're seeing, except, you know, it's always going to stay in farce. Um, and you also figure out that, um, I mean, you also figure that Leland probably would have been around the same age, uh, being traumatized and groomed by Bob at this point. And, you know, Laura was being groomed by Bob, too, at that age. You got to wonder, based on the way Twin Peaks looks away from everything, is this how Leland was treated, too? You know, like it was a big farce. Um, you know, is that how Bob was allowed to take over? Um yeah, in in this scenario, like if if it was Leland, yeah, would Deputy Andy see Leland and Bob flip flopping in in a dreamy thought balloon? Um, you know, in 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 the next episode, instead of seeing little Nikki as a devil, <laughs> you know, would would the town allow um, Bob to grow because they were showing the whites of their eyes to everything but the farcical side of uh, being a kid in Twin Peaks? You know, it's like in, instead of well, again, you know, using guilt, you know, it's like if there's no guilt, you know, it's like, what do you do? You don't put the kid in therapy. You put him into goofy physical comedy. Um, <laughs> you know, it explains how Leland could have maintained two dual identities all those years, singing and dancing and being all, you know, uh, this is a show. And um, how Ben could have become the conniving adult that he possibly is turning away from. And, you know, sure, you know, though, though for little Nikki right here. You know, so far, the farce kind of comes from good intentions because, you know, it's at least from Andy. You know, a Andy goes in there. The first thing we see from him is he's putting a Lucy tag on, you know, this this little nice flower on um, or a, a nice uh, yellow flowering plant on uh, Lucy's station. And, um, you know, this is when Dick comes in with little Nikki after being fitted for a new wardrobe and on the way to Malted's. So, you know, it's like uh, Dick does want to give this kid um, something happy to think about, even though it's self-serving on Dick's part. And, you know, he he says, you know, because Lucy's not there, they can't really spend the money and show off anymore. Um, you know, no more Malted's. And, you know, Nikki's upset because of the broken promise. And, you know, as a dad, yeah, it's like, yeah, you don't break a promise with a kid like that. Good Lord. But, you know. Dick is Dick <laughs> and uh, Andy wants to help. So it's like, you know, it's like, oh, I'll take you out for Malta's little fella or you know, however he says it. Now, Andy didn't do it to um, 
to show up dick you know he did it because he saw somebody who needed help and he helped and uh you know of course dick you know he's like because <laughs> he's competitive about it um and you know next time we see him they're over at the double r with norma um and you know norma's just beaming at this kid you know serving little nikki is like oh a child you know so happy um and um yeah so you know this is where um you know the the whipped cream and the um you know the the falling down you know it's like uncle andy went funny boom boom didn't he you know <laughs> and andy just saying you know gosh darn it anyway <laughs> you know it's like it, it's all this like wholesome 50sness um you know just like uh leave it to beaver or whatever though you know i mean in in a way though it's very condescending to little nicky and uh you know he's 10 <laughs> you know they're, they're acting like he's a kindergartner and you know he's easily like you know fourth grade or so and um yeah like i i don't know <laughs> it's um th there's a certain dissonance to it and i almost wonder if that was like in the back of the uh the, the writer's brains when when they were coming up with this whole thing in the first place. But yeah, it ends up on that physical comedy where, um, you know, um, Dick's dignity is sort of hurt and, um, you know, Andy's dignity and physical self is sort of hurt. You know, it, it leads the way to possibly getting fear that, you know, Nikki is cursed in some way. <laughs> but um, as of here, you know, it's like Andy is still basically looking from the from the point of view of love. Okay, so Andy's looking at the world through a positive viewpoint pretty much most of the time, and so is Cooper at the beginning of this episode. He begins, um, you know, basically, you know, with a uh, with a positive viewpoint, talking with Harry and Betty Briggs. You know, they're investigating the major's disappearance, but, you know, they're talking about how he'll disappear from time to time, you know, and then and Betty says, you know, granted, it's always been work-related. Agent Cooper, did it seem work-related? But, you know, they're speaking fondly of the major the whole time. They're not, you know, like, oh, God, where is he? They're talking about, you know, Cooper says, he has a renaissance passion for exploration, doesn't he? And Betty says, yeah, that is how he sees himself. And, you know, they're both admiring the major at this point. And there's and, you know, Betty says, and there's no manual for it, certainly no manual to be married to it. But, you know, they they do want to find him. But, you know, they're not fearful about where he's going. You know, they'd they'd rather reflect on the good elements of the mysterious man. And, um, you know, sure, they're 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 wary of the woods. You know, we've got Betty saying, you know, the fact that you were in the woods is very significant. Confidentially, he talks about them constantly. And, you know, Cooper asks, you know, has he been attempting to contact some element that lives in the woods as part of his top secret work? And she says that's classified. So they're respecting the major and they're also respecting the woods here you know um after after betty leaves uh cooper says harry the major didn't just wander off on some work related assignment the flash of light i saw is a powerful force that exists in those woods so you know again that that's kind of the three part here we we've got the um you know we we've got uh Earl, we've got the Black Lodge mythology coming up, you know, but um, the, the third part of that is, um, you know, the, this um, powerful force that exists in the woods. You know, it's like we get all the, the lore we need to start with right here. Um, but still, 
Cooper is in a positive place when he goes to see Roger and his assistants next. And the first thing we see in that scene is that word processor. I mean, <laughs> this is in that zone uh, of typewriters right before computers. And, um, you know, the desktop, com the desktop computer hasn't made it everywhere yet. And this Apple word processor is like top of the line stuff for people that are used to just typing with typewriters. You know, the, this is, uh, <laughs> it's quite a time capsule. But yeah, we've got um, Cooper going in there and, Instead of giving Roger anything to work with, he says, I have no defense. I'm completely confident in the rightness of my actions. Some of it happened outside bureau guidelines, and I will pay the price for that. But I am innocent of any criminal wrongdoing. If they wish to charge me, I will defend myself in the court of law. And that's it. <laughs> Roger nonverbally calls out his stenographer to stop. And then he says, Dale, there's a right way and a wrong way to do this. And the first thing we expect is a bureau man to stand up for himself. Now, a man who can't or doesn't even try, he may be packing feathers which where his spine is supposed to be. And, uh, <laughs> you know, like Roger is basically saying, OK, here is the process uh, please, you know, like, what are, what are you doing here? And then Cooper smiles and says, Roger, I know the move I'm supposed to make. And I know the board I've been doing a lot of thinking lately. And I've got, and I've started to focus out beyond the edge of the board at a bigger game. And, you know, <laughs> you've got Cooper getting thrown when Wyndham starts playing off the board, uh, with that, with that chess game that they're going to be playing later. But yet here, Cooper is doing it. So, you know, maybe if Cooper knows the reasons why someone is playing off the board, he has this confidence. But if someone else keeps the reasons to themselves when they're playing off the board, it makes Cooper nervous. Um, so, yeah, you know, there's <laughs> knowing that you're coming from a good place and then there's fear. Uh, again, a duality. Um but, you know, right now, Cooper isn't showing fear to what he can't control, you know, until until he gets the Earl tape later. Um, and, you know, Roger's just asking him what game and Cooper gets all, um, you know, he, he gets all philosophical about the whole thing. And, you know, the the sound of the wind makes through the pines, you know, it's a, that's almost like a Lynch direction note right there. You know, he says more wind when he wants something to be mysterious. Um, and then um, Cooper goes on, you know, the sentience of animals, what we fear in the dark and what lies beyond the darkness. So, uh, you know, Roger says, what the hell are you talking about? And then we get Cooper basically answering with the, the thesis statement of the season two at this point. I'm talking about seeing beyond fear, Roger. Um, so is fear the board? Yeah, um, the, that he's playing on, that everybody's playing on in the FBI, it, it equates in some capacity anyway. Um, and then he, he specifically says about looking at the world with love. So, you know, Roger brings up the charges against Cooper's and uh, against Cooper. And he says, these are things I cannot control. And, you know, Roger doesn't understand the suspension will remain in force. Uh, you know, and then he says the next move is up to the Canadian government and the DEA investigation, which begins today. You've cracked a big case. You've been under a lot of pressure. I may recommend a full psychological workup. So, you know, <laughs> he's, he's thinking Cooper is basically jumping ship from sanity. And, um, 
you know, Cooper only answers, thank you for your candor, Roger. So long, fellas. Then he gets up and, you know, there's that flute cue of uh, of the freshly squeezed theme. And, um, you know, Cooper leaves and it's focused on the holster gun and the badge. So, you know, Cooper's kind of leaving behind his old work identity. You know, it's like his his identity is now not his job and not the gun and the holster and the badge, you know, it's like, it, it's not, I am the FBI here because he's actually in a good space and he isn't focused on fear at all. But, you know, we've pretty much covered everything except for the fear in this episode. So now I've got to ask, are we in a nightmare? And it may be a silly place to start, but I'm going to start with Ernie over at the double R, you know, enter Hank and Ernie in their hunting clothes from a fatiguing hunting expedition. And, you know, Norma goes up to Ernie and asks, you know, catch anything? And Ernie says, I hope not. And, you know, judgment from Norma's face big time. And then he like catches on and says, oh, catch anything, you know, as if he made the mistake of hearing, uh, came across a 12 point buck. And, you know, then he elaborates on this giant story and norma is buying absolutely none of this and you know basically says oh is it being mounted and ernie sidesteps around that into you know i should check on your mother um you know then then norma says you know she's not here she's gone back to seattle and that's where i think you should go too and walks away almost through the returning hank and you know Hank talks to Ernie, you know, like, oh, that, you know, it basically justifies how uh, Vivian not being there makes his current situation easier to pull off. And, you know, I, I think that's also a cue so that the viewers don't have to pay any mind to it again. But, um, you know, I, re I really like that even though there's all this um, <laughs> all, all this negative frequency stuff, you know, like that that's going on with Hank and Ernie. Norma decides to push against it. And, you know, we get we get a Mod Squad reunion with Clarence Williams III, who plays Roger, and uh, who also played her co-star back when they were both on Mod Squad together. Um, so, you know, we've got Norma and Roger sharing a scene. There's big smiles from both of the actors. And, you know, he's like, you know, I've heard so much about the pie. Um, and, you know, we get Norma again smiling uh, when she's serving up little Nicky, Andy, and Dick. And... Um, it's kind of neat to look at, you know, Ed's romantic interest in, in this episode are both absolutely blooming and realizing things about themselves as well as, you know, I mean, they're basically building a proper set of boundaries for what they want too. you know, I mean, Nadine may get a little, uh, <laughs> pushy with Mike in a way, but, uh, you know, we've got, um, you know, we've got Norma here, like keeping her light safe with the these boundary walls that she keeps putting up you know like she doesn't want ernie around her either and she makes it absolutely clear so you know here's another proof that you know even though we have a dark scene you know it's like we've got norma growing her light in it you know the the light and the dark exist at once in twin peaks and you know we've got these characters choosing to associate with one frequency or the other and speaking of having the choice to choose a positive or a negative kind of way of dealing with problems we've got josie packard and um you know i think she's basically paying for the fact that you know if if you're not your truest self you're opening yourself up to fear and the fear can change you from the outside in and um i mean josie's had a tough life and we're getting a lot of it here um 
you know, so she's in Harry's cabin, um, you know, just waking up. And, uh, you know, we get the, the hunt, the, the hunting spooky music, a lot like Harold's theme. And, you know, we've got Harry opening the blinds, bringing the light to her, uh, hands her a water, uh, kisses her neck and climbs in behind her. And, you know, she smiles as, as he becomes her pillow. And, um, you know, it, it seems like it's going to be a, a wordless snuggle fest, just like it was wordless when she, you know, came back into the, the Twin Peaks scene last episode. And um, the first words we finally get from Harry, you know, before we realize he's not going to make out with her automatically, he says, Josie, it's time. And, um, you know, says, I can't be with you unless I know. And, you know, <laughs> we get an, oh, Harry. And then, you know, Harry is actually pretty focused on this one. You know, he says the truth. And, you know, she begins with a large portion of her backstory at this point. You know, he used to work for a man in Hong Kong. Uh, his name is Thomas Eckerd. Helped her uh, when she was 16, year old, uh, 16 years old to get off the streets. Um, you know, she's lucky because female children were sometimes sold, she says. So, I mean, we've got all this colonialism crap um, fairly front and center and actually acknowledged. You know, it's like they, they could have... Uh, left her being this exotic woman, but um, they did actually mention something related to the colonialism that they're kind of uh, trapping her in. But yeah, so um, Eckert taught her about business. Uh, he's um, her master and her lover. Um, but then when she met Andrew, uh, Thomas's business partner, uh, she was already afraid for her life with Eckert. And, um, you know, when Andrew asked her to marry, she said yes. And, you know, Harry shifts over, you know, about Mr. Lee, this cousin, you know, the, this thing that he and Pete had a question about a few episodes ago that he's uh, still pretty fixated on. You know, Josie says, I'm sorry, Harry, I was trying to get you. I, I was trying to keep you out of this. The less you knew about the better. And, you know, he asked, who was he? Um and he works for Eckert, and she says, if I didn't go back, he said he'd kill you. Yeah, Eckert thinks that Josie is his property. Um, and she says, you know, when Andrew was alive, he could protect me. Which, of course, my question to Josie is, so why did you attempt to kill him? Um, and then she says, I now believe Eckert is the man responsible for Andrew's death. So... Is this convenient retconning by the writers or is Josie just protecting herself here, uh, you know, protecting her own complicity in the thing from Harry, um, you know, out of fear that maybe he'd abandon her or something? Because, you know, why did Hank kill a vagrant to get out of what Josie had him do? Um, you know, she's erasing her part of Eckert's plan. And, you know, the Josie knew all along that he was responsible, probably. and. Um, you know, in, in a lot of ways, kind of like how Leland's responsible for his part of going through with things. And, um, you know, it's a bad situation, but Josie's technically responsible for her part in going along with the plan as well, except she's kind of blaming it on the thing that had the power over her, which, I mean, you know, I, I do sympathize with these situations for sure, but, you know, she... I mean, she killed Mr. Lee and tried to get away. So, you know, it's like she does have a certain amount of power in this. She just doesn't believe she does because she's kind of a thing. 
uh, to Eckerd and everybody else. And uh, I kind of, I honestly think that Josie lets these people make her a thing to herself too. Like she knows she's like a trading piece in their situation. But yeah, at this point, Josie says, I'd rather die. I'd rather die than go back to that monster. So she says it twice, which means, you know, that their reinforcement, it's like her absolute truth because she said it twice. You know, she'd rather die. And then Harry says, you never have to go back there. You're with me now. And what she counters to Harry is now he'll kill the both of us. And there's a lot of pausing. And then Harry says, let him try. But, you know, she'll speak to Catherine later, you know, to, to make a deal for herself, uh, you know, for her own protection. You know, she has no faith in Harry to be a genuine protector, apparently. You know, she needs to protect him because she hasn't prepared him with enough proper information to properly ready him for this situation, maybe. Yeah, I mean, he he's an innocent from the outside looking in, and she does seem to love him. but doesn't believe that he's able to protect her at the end of the day um you know or is technically she just protecting her darker parts from harry so that he doesn't see her like that and then you know likely turn on her as most people do because it's a transactional relationship that she's had all her life with everybody or you know did does she just believe that you know, because of all this history, does she believe the major's biggest fear that love may not be enough? When speaking to Catherine later, you know, there's this black and white photo of Andrew Packard at the beginning of the scene, uh, you know, looking up, uh, looking up off camera. So, you know, it, it's almost like he's looking up at Josie, judging her for her part in um, Andrew's death. Um, but, you know, we also know that's just like physically there to show a picture of the guy who's going to be walking on screen. So we have a better clue as to who this mysterious person is. But, you know, Josie begins this scene with um, with her talking about Andrew and Eckert. You know, it's interesting that Eckert surfacing in the same episode as Earl's voice um, seems to lead to parallels that Eckert is kind of on the same um, scare level as Earl, but we've got, we've got Catherine, you know, hearing this story from Josie about, you know, Eckerd being responsible for Andrew's death, et cetera, et cetera. And Catherine says, tell me something I don't know. And, um, you know, what, what Josie counters with is you're in terrible danger, Catherine. And, um, you know, Catherine basically says, you help kill my brother. Try to cheat me out of my land, my family's life, blood. And that makes me think of Don't Sell Your Blood that Carl Rod tells Crispin in season three. Utterly destroy my existence, and now you want to save me. And, um, you know, Josie says, I had to do those things to stay alive. And uh, she has no one else to turn to now, has nothing, and she's at Catherine's mercy. You know, I mean, that all makes sense except that she had an offer from harry um so catherine says let's be practical what do you propose we do and you know josie says i don't know um and catherine says then i'll tell you from now on you work for me here at the house as a maid you move your things to the servants quarters you disobey me if you lie to me if you contradict a single thing i tell you i shall find this eckert and feed you to him by hand is that clear and then when Josie doesn't say anything, she says, speak, 
So yeah, Josie says, yes, I understand. And um, yeah, Catherine's basically turned her into a servant, but also turned her into a thing that she is going to use for any of her whims. And I can kind of understand the revenge angle if it was just a revenge angle. You know, like it, it all kind of tracks with how she feels about, you know, Josie killing her brother. But, you know, then we find out there's a plan to it later, you know, and um, but but, you know, at this point, Catherine is um, saying, you know, fine, we'll talk about this record some other time. You may go to your room. So she's telling uh, Josie her first command and, you know, Josie just says, thank you and walks away. But Catherine stops her and says, I'll take breakfast at seven in my room. Coffee, juice, dry toast, oatmeal. And and Josie just says yes. And Catherine says, sweet dreams. And, you know, that's when um, Josie's, Josie leaves and then in walks Andrew. And, um, you know, I'll, I'll be talking about the Catherine and Andrew side of this in a little bit. But, you know, we've got Josie not believing love is enough and letting people turn her into a thing. And um, honestly, Evelyn Marsh actually has a lot in common with Josie in this episode. You know, it's like they've both let themselves become possessions rather than people, and they allow others to define them as such. How do we get Evelyn in the the picture of Twin Peaks? James gets involved with her. And, um, you know, right now, James is basically operating under love is not enough, same as Josie, and probably same as Evelyn. You know, he's running from one battleground, um, you know, he, he basically seeds, um, the wind to the darkness of Twin Peaks, uh, when Maddie dies, you know, it's like, it doesn't matter how much love he and Donna have. Um, he is basically, uh, saying, okay, I got to get out of town. This isn't enough. You know, the love goes to hell. It doesn't matter if we're happy. So, you know, he's letting the darkness win Twin Peaks and he's driving into it. And, um, you know, he, uh, he ends up leaving and then he finds Evelyn and, you know, of course, you know, what's his first instinct to help. So, you know, his light, his light isn't gone. He's just, um, letting Twin Peaks kind of have a victory over him and he has to go away from it and into his own drama to get through it, I guess. So, yeah, I mean, the, the episode starts with that, that high school guitar <laughs> and, um, you know, it's, it's that total rockabilly thing for James and, you know, James is riding on the motorcycle and, you know, this is material unused from the pilot that, uh, you know, Dwayne Dunham knew about because he was there editing the whole thing. Um, so, you know, it's like, he always thought it was cool to use and, um, you know, why not do it? when James is leaving town for a while. And, you know, we've got, um, you know, the, this establishing shot goes on uh, for, for quite some time. But, you know, then, you know, it's, it's a two-lane road that he's driving on. But then he veers into the oncoming lane and out of the camera. And, you know, sure, it's like he's driving around the, the vehicle that's um, in front of him. But um, what it essentially looks like visually is that he's deciding to go the wrong way and he's like literally driving in a it's almost like he's he's doing a reversal 
and he's driving into a scene that's going the wrong way that might be you know negative or you know backwards driving <laughs> and uh you know that whole plot line is sort of like this weird um alternate world anyway and it's it's kind of funny that like visually speaking like it's right there in james's first uh non-speaking scene and then he pulls up the hideout wally's or wally's hideout you know it's it's written hideout on top and then wally's underneath it so that's kind of an inversion too um and you know he pulls the motorcycle in and you know he um he pulls up right next to Evelyn's vintage Corvette, which is absolutely black on the outside with a red interior. So again, you know, all these kind of, uh, you know, like a, a physical representation of lodge space, you know, <laughs> you know, while Cooper's uh, learning all about, you know, the, the black lodge and the white lodge and all that, you know, James is like doing the physical representation of what Cooper is going to end up doing over the course of the, the rest of the season. But thankfully James only does it for like six episodes. And, you know, when he goes into the bar, he sits right next to Evelyn, uh, orders a beer, and, you know, she tries to basically net him like she's in a noir movie and he's her patsy. So, you know, is there someplace you're going to or running from? You know, she basically kind of comes on to him. You know, it's like, can you do anything with cars? You know, thinks it'd be a good, she basically thinks it'd be a good idea to fix that car before her husband gets back, which, you know, implies that there's a threat with her husband. Um, you know, add, add to the Nora comments about men being all right until they pull the trigger. Um, you know, James basically offers his help again right here. And, you know, like, even though he's in the middle of his own problems, it's interesting that he always tries to be helpful. And, you know, is, is that why James has always been cool? Because he always tries to help anyway, no matter what kind of drama is going on in his head. Uh, but anyway, he, he doesn't help right away. He says, you know, mind if I play the box first, which is, you know, the jukebox. Um, and then she gives him a coin to play it. And he picks I'm Hurt Bad, which is what Bobby plays for Norma on the way out the door in the pilot. And, um, you know, Evelyn just watches James park his forehead up against the jukebox. And, um, you know, we've got James, um, you know, going further into music at this point. And, you know, music helps take him somewhere else. And, you know, it goes along with that comment, you know, he's only quiet on the outside. <laughs> uh, but anyway, that goes into a commercial break. And then the next time we see him, is at Evelyn's garage and he's actually taking a look at this old school roadster and you know the car is absolutely gorgeous and you know we've got Evelyn in red you know just like red curtains probably um and um you know she's telling him you know Jeffrey loves his car and um you know she doesn't know where he's traveling this week on business but she knows that the car is built in 1948 so he tells her about his things but not about his life you know we've got Jeffrey has to have the most unique and beautiful toys and they need to be perfect. And, you know, this is obviously Evelyn referring to herself and her own situation, you know, her own requirements for her lifestyle and, um, you know, how she's treated by him. And, you know, th this, this is where I really get the Josie connection. Um, but you know, James's thoughts are, you know, I, on the same kind of situation as, you know, he's not concerned about how his bike looks, 
but where it can take me. And, you know, she asks, you know, where do you want to go? And uh, he talks, you know, it's not really a place, it's a feeling. So, you know, feeling rather than a physical thing, you know, what is a feeling? It's kind of a frequency, like a negative or a positive frequency, perhaps. Um, you know, extra textual to the show at the time, but, you know, thematically relevant all the way through anyway. Um, and, you know, James talks about riding at night, you know, turning off his lights and rocketing blind into the dark. So, you know, he uh, he has no problem, uh, you know, getting close to the darkness and he keeps flirting with it. But, you know, it's like the horse is the white of the eyes similarity too. you know, it's like how he was this how he was with Laura. You know, he just closed his eyes and turned off his light and drove into the dark with her. Um, is that or is that how he found Laura in the first place? You know, it's like he, he kind of flirts with danger this whole time. That's a little much for right now. Right now, we get the agreement that, you know, James thinks that he can fix the car. And, you know, Evelyn gives all these uh, definitions. You know, there's a room over the garage, uh, room and board, anything else you think is fair, implying a relationship with her, possibly, probably. Um, and, you know, then she says, I really do need to have it fixed before Jeffrey gets home. And, um, you know, there's that threat again of... Um, you know, one of his toys not being fixed and, you know, retribution coming if, um, if he gets home and it's still not fixed. Um, but then, you know, she adds, I'd like you to stay James. I'd enjoy the company. So, you know, she's, you know, putting herself on the table as well at this point. Um, but yeah, Evelyn has possessed James's services. You know, he's a thing, he's a function for her as well. And, you know, just like she's a function for Jeffrey and or Malcolm, um, you know, maybe maybe that's what she feels like she has in common with James and that, you know, that's kind of what starts, um, you know, her liking him in the future and uh, kind of allowing him to, a chance to be saved before the situation gets worse. Um but, you know, as of right now, Evelyn just leaves and James stares off and, you know, he's he's just found himself another, you know, attainable, unattainable, troubled blonde who, uh, you know, just acquired his services. Now, I mentioned that the Black Lodge is mentioned in this episode. We've got, um, you know, Cooper. He's he's just in a shirt and tie, you know, no, no coat at this point, you know, and he's pouring coffee. Which, you know, to me says, you know, this is going in the right direction anyway, even though they're um, they're just talking about it, you know, talking about the negative side of things. Um, but, you know, this is where he first hears about the Black Lodge with, um, you know, Harry and Hawk. You know, Harry asked, you know, what are you going to do if we can't find a way to get you cleared? And Cooper says, you know, well, Harry, the giant says a path is laid, but is formed by laying one stone at a time. And, you know. Then this is where he pauses to ask about the White Lodge. But, you know, mentioning the giant in a time when continuity isn't mentioned very much, you know, it's like this associates the giant's part of the mythology and Cooper's openness to the mythology with this new additional lore here. You know, we're supposed to take it as, you know, a, a, a thing to really pay attention to. And, you know, this is when we find out Hawk is there, too. You know, both both he and Harry know something because they look at each other. And Hawk asked, you know, it's like, where do you hear of it? And, um, you know, Cooper says, you know, it's the last thing Major Briggs spoke of before he disappeared. 
And this is where we get Hawk's classic monologue. You know, Cooper, you may be fearless in this world, but there are other worlds. Uh, my people believe that the White Lodge is a place where spirits that rule man and nature here reside. And, you know, Harry backs him up and says, local legend goes way back, which is, you know, funny when he also knows late in the game about Owl Cave, you know, so it's like there are memory issues with this stuff, just like, uh, you know, Albert talking to Gordon about the uh, Monica Bellucci dream that, you know, it's like, yeah, I'm beginning to remember it, too. Um, you know, <laughs> like you can only remember the supernatural stuff when you need to remember it not before you know it has nothing to do with you know writers not quite knowing the future it's just <laughs> yeah <clears throat> but um anyway hawk how <clears throat> excuse me <clears throat> anyway hawk goes on to elaborate there is also a legend of a place called the black lodge the shadow self of the white lodge legend says that every spirit must pass through there on the way to perfection there you will meet your own shadow self. My people call it the dweller on the threshold. And Cooper repeats, the dweller on the threshold. You know, so there's that two meaning it's important again. Um, but it is said, if you confront the Black Lodge with imperfect courage, it will utterly annihilate your soul. And, you know, so it's it's amazing to me how much of this actually predicts what happens in you know, the last part of the season and the finale. Um, and, you know, honestly, how close it is to the model of, you know, the only way beyond trauma is through it. <laughs> it's all metaphorical and it's all very, um, you know, it's related to the internal and the external at the same time. And now that Cooper knows about this dark area, um, you know, it's like there's mail being dropped on a desk and, um, you know, that, that lodgy soundscape, like when, um, when Cooper first met the giant, you know, that's the kind of rumble that's happening in the, uh, in the soundtrack. And, you know, Cooper, you know, speaking of this envelope, he says, Wyndham Earl, and we hear the clock ticking in the background, which we don't hear very often at all. Um, you know, it was there when, uh, Cooper was in the great Northern talking to Philip Gerard. It was there when, um, Cooper was getting ready to have his dream. You know, it's like that clock is there. Like, when when things are really important it seems and you know we see the uh the index card drop p to q4 a chess move and then cooper goes through the process of switching the tape in his recorder to the tape that came in the envelope so you know we have we have um you know an active inversion here as well where cooper usually speaks into the tape for diane but in this case it's a voice that never comes through that tape recorder back to Cooper. So it's it's a reversal and a subversion of the voice. And we hear Earl's voice for the first time. He says, of course, you couldn't help but take note of my emphatically traditional opening. I must say your responding move was nothing if not reflective of your predilection for the tidy and fastidious. And, you know, reflective, you know, seeing in self, mirror, like that, that kind of language is there again. Um, and Earl says, see how my response to you begins to lead us towards a classic confrontation. And this is where Cooper looks actively serious and, you know, worried about it, about the words that he's hearing. Um, 
but there's doubt in your mind. What are my true intentions? How will you answer this time? And, you know, this is when Cooper turns and actually begins, you know, making movements. Um, you know, uh, Earl says, Hobgoblin, stale consistency, predictability, giving rise to patterns. We both know only too well how these patterns leave you vulnerable to attack. With you and your wounds, I with mine, let me paint you a picture. My knight will skirmish, lanes of power and influence will open through my bishops and rooks, Pawns will naturally be forfeit. I'm even prepared to sacrifice my queen, because I assure you, dear Dale, my goal will be to attain at any cost. The king must die. <clears throat> and we've got a quiet Earl here, you know, the the, the one that we get at the end of the Uli Edel episode, uh, where we actually see Earl for the first time. You know, it's like he's cool. He's collected. He's... um. You know, he's the sound of, like, controlled dread, not the 66 uh, Batman Joker that we'll get, um, you know, once he starts wearing the long johns. Um, and, you know, also, like, this whole thing you just said is the plot of the final episodes of season two here. You know, it's it's right here. And we hear we, we see that, you know, the manipulator is proven to be mostly correct, though, you know, he also... Um, you know, talking about, you know, he with his own wounds, um, you know, he, he's he's predicting also that, you know, he's vulnerable to attack and, you know, gives room for when he ends up actually losing in the end. So, you know, even the part that Earl won't like about his fate is still predicted here in this monologue. And, you know, we've got Cooper looking up and looking away and the Laura Palmer theme kicks in for the last few seconds before a commercial break. Um so, you know, yeah, we get the Hawk mythology, uh, the, the monologue about the outward mythology and, you know, Earl's predicting the um, the the plot with Cooper and his confrontation. And, you know, all of this is here in plain sight right here, in, you know, like uh, what, like 13 episodes away from the end or something. Um, it, it's an interesting use of uh, setting up the momentum here. But. Does Dale actually see this future taking shape here? Or, you know, does he like use this as a map to um kind of get through Earl's plans? Um, you know, it's like next time we see him, it's with Denise talking about his immediate issues instead. And then after that, Dale's with Audrey dancing, and you know, she's all glowing at him as ever. And you know, he's not even thinking about what he just heard. He says, The wonderful thing about dancing, Audrey, is you never know where the steps will lead. You hang on and hope the music takes you there. So, you know, this is a Cooper who just got information about Earl, and he's not really giving any of that any credence because he'd rather just, you know, let the music take him somewhere. So, you know, we've got music in the air. Um, is it relating to intuition with the way Dale is talking about it now? I think so. You know, we've, we've got, you know, Dale connecting it. Um, he, he's kind of tying the, the lodge spaces together with, you know, you know, just flowing with music and, um, it kind of sounds like he's tapping into Lodge Space to get his intuition, but you know it's also possible that Lodge Space is tapping into Dale to um, let his intuition kind of uh, glide him right to them. 
And, you know, like this could all be also related to a Bob trap. And, um, you know, they're, they're luring his light into the dark, just like how, um, Evelyn Marsh is luring, uh, James's light into her dark. You know, it's like, it's, um, yeah, they're, it's not at the same level, obviously, but, you know, repeating themes, you know, fractal, uh, fractal expressions of the same situations happening here. And, you know, whatever plans we're talking about with, um, you know, what, what that, uh, Cooper will be lured into here. Um, you know, there, there's also these other plans that are also happening. And, um, we got to ask, how do characters plans evolve in this supernaturally laced environment? So, you know, we've got Denise, um, you know, talking about catching the bouquet, you know, she un unfair advantage. How many of those girls were wide, you know, varsity wide receivers? Um, but, you know, then he says, you know, bad news first. I found cocaine residue in your car, a match for the stuff. So, you know, he, um, you know, he corrects Cooper on using Dennis, uh, which, you know, Cooper responds to positively. And, you know, I mean, it's just like this is this is a person who knows herself and who. Um, who gives strong boundaries now and, um, you know, just understands how to respect. And, um, you know, this is the person who controls Cooper's FBI fate because, you know, um, it looks like a frame job and she takes Cooper's words for being probably true. But, you know, then she says, you know, we need more than Cooper's opinion to make this stick. And, um, you know, th this is the most authentic character we've got in the show currently. And, um, you know, this is exactly where she knows she needs to be um you know even even her physical representation you know it's like she knows all of this stuff and is doing it so this is a good person to have on on your side when you're in the middle of this investigation that's uh, a giant upheaval to your way of life so i'd say like using that kind of a positive energy like that would keep Cooper on a positive frequency you know pushing through against this darkness um, that's trying to, you know, attack him. But, you know, then we've got this plan on Josie's side with Catherine and Andrew. And, um, you know, after Andrew walks out, uh, Catherine says, you know, happy Andrew. And, um, you know, Andrew just nods and says, everything is going exactly as we planned. And, um, and now dear sister, we wait for Thomas Eckert to come looking for his one true love. And when he does, Catherine finishes the sentence, we'll be waiting for him. And Andrew nods. And that's when we get the end of the episode. But, um, you know, th there's so many questions with this. You know, it's like, when did Catherine know that Andrew was alive? You know, it's very suspect how they brought this character in. You know, th there's all this uh, colonialism and possession brought in hard for Josie. You know, it's like Josie is a lure now. She is bait for Thomas Eckert. You know, she's a thing. But instead of being this thing to marry and to be with that way, um, you know, now she's just a lure to bring in a revenge scheme for uh, Andrew Packard, who is trying to, um, you know, finally get one over on the guy who tried to get one over on him but couldn't. Uh, but yeah, like, who who are these guys that are trying to get one over on each other? Um you know, okay, Eckert is basically a looming presence made as dangerous as Wyndham Earl in in um in the way they're used in these scenes. Um 
And then, you know, this other one has been hiding somewhere this whole time, you know, and he's probably been at the, the summer home at Pearl Lakes that possibly, um, Catherine actually did get to after she was, um, you know, getting ready to do her Tojimura thing after the mill fire. But, um, you know, did she know then that Andrew was already there? Like it's, it's all tough to understand, you know, it's like, does, um, you know, does Catherine's play against Ben Horn as Tojimura have anything to do with Andrew helping Planet or anything? You know, it's a, that's also possible. You know, th- there's there's all these motives that we could figure that, you know, Andrew has always been revealed to Catherine. And, you know, they've they've been doing this thing behind the scenes. You know, it's like you just don't know. But, um, you know, there, there's all these things like hidden in secrets and when they're still hidden in secrets, they just tend to wind around and get, you know, like you, you lose yourself in the details because there's too many of them. And, um, you know, the trails are rarely easy to navigate. And, um, you know, this is no different. This is, this is what planning in the dark gets in twin peaks. You know, it's like, it's just convolution. It's about repeating patterns. It's about, um, you know, secrets and hiding and, you know, um, hidden identities you know unlike having someone as authentic as denise here it's like everybody is just hiding things and um you know the light's just never gonna get in there to shine light on what's actually happening and of course it's not gonna end up going well for anybody you know it's like Catherine's gonna be basically like a uh a mom to (laughs) two guys you know pete and andrew doing hijinks together and um you know, most of those folks are going to get blown up in a, in a, um, in an explosion at a bank. So, you know, it's like, if you're, if you're leaning into the darkness of Twin Peaks, it's not going to go well for you, but you know, we're going to look into that. We're going to look into Cooper's situation. We're going to look in all of that in future episodes. As of right now, we are here at the sign off. So you have been listening to the Blue Rose Task Force podcast, a production of Ruminations Radio Network and TV Obsessive Radio. If you resonate with what you're hearing, please subscribe, rate, and review our show. And we would love to connect with you on Twitter at Blue Rose TF Pod, on Counter Social at Blue Rose Task Force Podcast, and Instagram and Facebook at Blue Rose Task Force. You can find me at JPB underscore Little Green on Twitter and John underscore The underscore Peaky on Instagram. Visit Ruminations Radio Network for additional great shows such as Cinephile Hissy Fit and Brevity Box. And join all the hosts from Ruminations Radio Network, myself included, on our Discord channel, Ruminations Radio Cafe. Find any number of classic 25YL <clears throat> Twin Peaks articles and content on many other shows at 25yearslatersite.com. And if you want to be part of our next mailbag episode, send any comments, questions, or feedback to Blue Rose Task Force Podcast at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week as we cover episode 19, the 20th overall episode of Twin Peaks. Until then, listeners, I'll see you in my dreams.
This is a, a gift to all the fans. 